John Reed was a bishop that worked um, in Australia, and he worked with students. On one occasion, he took a group of boys on a trip, and there was a busload of them. Half of them were Aborigines, half of them were white. And these kids were at it. These boys were being really bad, and they were just clearly divided according to the racial lines. And so he had it. He stands up, he walks in the back, and he walks over to the boy, he says, what color are you? He says, Bishop Reed, I'm black. He says, no, you're not. You're green. Walked over to another boy. He says, what color are you? He says, Bishop, I'm white. He says, no, you're not. You're green. Do you get it, boys? You're all green here. We're all green. Now get along. Let's have peace. There was quiet. Went back to his seat, and he thought, oh, I think that worked. Two minutes later. Two minutes in the back of the bus. All right. Light green on the right. Dark green on the left. Now, we laugh at that, but we understand the kinds of things that go on when people divide according to race or according to anything. These are hard things. Two weeks ago, if you saw the Time magazine, the lead article was why they hate each other, the Sunnis and the Shiites. It opens up telling a story of what happened back in August of 2005 when a group of Shiite pilgrims were crossing the Tigris River on a bridge, and all of a sudden there's a stampede, and people panic. They start jumping off the bridge into the Tigris River. Some Sunnis were there. One of them, a 25-year-old guy, who rescues six of these people before he just completely, utterly is exhausted and drowns himself. He becomes this hero. He becomes a symbol that the Sunnis would hold up to say, See, we really do like you, our Shiite brothers and sisters. Well... Since that happened, a lot of bloodshed has gone on between the Sunnis and the Shiites. And by the time the Times reporter gets in the mix, he meets up with a guy who is one of the peers of the man who rescued those people. And he says, you know what? That guy wasted his life saving those animals. It was a complete waste of his life. When asked, did he save any people? He says, I, I don't even want to talk about it. It's a shame for me even to think that I saved some of those people on that day. And he went on to say, if I ever was walking down the banks of the Tigris, if I ever saw a Shiite child drowning in the river, there's no way I'd go and help them out. Well, we know that's not just the stuff and attitudes of the Middle East. Remember this week in New York, there were things just like this, racial tensions going on over an alleged police brutality case. It's not just in big cities like New York. It's in cities like Madison. In fact, it's the stuff of this world. Living in this fallen world, we find ourselves in these strained and often severed relationships where there's no longer peace but hostility towards one another. And the beautiful thing about the gospel, the beautiful thing about the Bible is it reveals us God's plan of bringing things together. In fact, when you go back to Ephesians 1.10, it's one of the great verses that give us the cliff note of the whole theme of the Bible in one verse. At the end of verse 10, this is what Paul wrote. God's about this, to bring all things together in heaven and on earth together under one head, one leader, and that leader is even Christ. It's Christ Jesus, the Lord. And so in chapter 2, as we've been starting out this series of um, Ephesians, our identity and our mission in Christ, we saw that we are a people who've been reconciled to God. We were dead in our sins, chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, but we've been made alive. We've been brought back into this relationship with God through His Son, Jesus Christ, all by God's grace. 
reconciled with him. And it reminds us of the vertical structure of the cross. It reconciles us. It makes peace between us and God. Sinful humanity and a holy God. But now in the second half of chapter 2, it moves to the, the horizontal dimension of the cross. That is that it reconciles us to each other. That's at the heart of what our passage is about this morning. And, and the lesson here is when we don't remember the cross, when we don't live in its shadow and live out the truths of Christ dying for us, his life for ours, when we don't live in the shadow of the cross, we don't remember it. What happens is you can just kiss peace goodbye. Kiss it goodbye in our relationship with God. And especially in verses 11 through 22, kiss it goodbye in our relationships with each other. And so there's one verb that's in a command form in the first three chapters. And it's the word remember in verse 11. And it reminds us to remember the cross, to remember the cross. Because when we remember the cross, we don't forget who we were, verses 11 and 12. We don't forget what Christ has done verses 13 through 18, that he's reconciled us back to God and each other. We were alienated, but now we're reconciled. And we remember the cross so we don't forget who we are as his family. We, we are this new body. We're these people who now are members of this living temple in whom God lives, verses 19 through 22. So open your Bibles, chapter 2, and let's dig into that opening section where we remember the cross, so we don't forget who we were. You'll find that on page 827 if you would need to use the Bible in the rack in front of you. Here's what Paul writes in verse 11. Therefore, remember that formerly in the past, you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, that done in the body by hands of men. Remember that at that time, you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. Now, there's a couple terms here that we want to be clear on. Gentiles, Gentiles by birth. Gentiles just simply means all those who are not Jews. It literally could be translated the nations and it referred to all the nations outside of the nation of Israel, the Jews. So the nation, the Jewish nation. So anybody who's not a Jew is a Gentile, okay? That means most of us here this morning, we're Gentiles, okay? Circumcision. Circumcision was the sign of the covenant of God's promise to be Israel's God and for them to be his people. It was the cutting off of the foreskin of the male, of the young boy, that was that sign that marked them off as God's treasured possession. It's kind of the Old Testament equivalent to baptism in the new. It brought them into this relationship. It reminded them of something that was going on internally. And that is that their hearts have been set aside by God for God. Those two terms are important as we consider who we were. And who we were, in a word, is we were alienated. Alienated from God, and especially he's going on to mark off alienated from each other. Alienated from God when he says separate from Christ. You were separated from Christ. Verse 12. 
But then he goes on to talk about the horizontal dimensions. Not only did your sin separate you from Christ, God's Savior, but you were separated from God's people, excluded from citizenship in Israel. It's like you were refugees. We were refugees. We didn't belong as Gentiles in God's family at the very beginning. We're on the outside looking in like refugees. We're foreigners to God's word, to the covenants of promise. We didn't have those. We didn't understand them. It's kind of like going to Tokyo for me, probably for most of us. You go out in Tokyo and you go down the street and you go, I don't have a clue what store I'm going into. Do you? I don't have a clue. I don't know which one's a restaurant. I don't know what, I, I, I don't know it because I don't understand it. Can't read that language. And they were foreigners to the covenants of God's promise to be his God, for them to be his people. And the result is there's separation and there's animosity. There's hostility. He talks about it in verse 14. The hostility can be heard and felt in, in a saying that was very common in antiquity regarding the Jewish feeling toward the Gentiles. Here's what they'd say. The reason God created the Gentiles was to fuel the flames of hell. That's what they're good for. That's the only reason God could have created them. These are dogs. These are the outsider. These are the scum of the earth. And the only good they could ever become is to fuel the flames of hell. Those feelings of hostility were also coupled with this division that was even part of their religious practices. So in Paul's day, when he's writing this, there's a temple in Jerusalem. It's called Herod's Temple because he built it. The outer court was called the court of the Gentiles. The Gentiles could go into that place. It was far removed, though, from the altar, from the holy place, from the holy holies, where sacrifices were made, where God's presence was there. They were separated from the court of the women with this four-and-a-half-foot wall that went all the way around the court keeping them from that. And every so often, there'd be this pillar that would come up and an inscription on the pillar, which back in the late 1800s, they dug up and unearthed. And the inscription basically read, if you as a foreigner, as a stranger, as a Gentile, go beyond this wall, basically, you're taking your life in your own hands. We're going to kill you and you got yourself to blame because we've clearly stated it right here. You don't belong inside there. You're a Gentile you get a feeling of the animosity when you read in the, the account in Acts chapter 22. Here's the account where Paul's been arrested it's near the end of his life, end of his missionary journeys. He's in Jerusalem. He's explaining his story, how he was this Pharisee. He met God on the way to Damascus. He's no longer persecuting God's people, but now he's taking the message of peace and he says this to the Gentiles. And when he says that, the people go crazy. The religious leaders start tearing their clothes and they start pulling out their hair and they start demanding that they kill this man for saying anything that would insinuate that God has a plan that includes the Gentiles. They're furious. That's that's the temperature of what's going on here between the Jews and the Gentiles. And the result is, he says, we are without hope and without God. Or as Phillips translates it, nothing to look forward to and no God to turn to. And so the complete image here is just one of alienation, of separation, of animosity, of hostility between Jews and Gentiles. 
That's who we were. Now, I want to give a teaching point before we go to the next section. And it's kind of an unusual way to get there because we're going to take a teaching point that has to do with the Jewish people and apply it to us, who most of us are Gentiles. And it has to do with this position of privilege. The Jews had this position of privilege. God had chosen them. He'd come into a relationship with them. He'd given them his law. He'd made miraculous provision for them. He'd given them the promised land. He'd given them the promises. They had this privilege of being God's people. But the privilege was abused to the point where they became proud about their standing before God. And they became haters of those that God actually wanted to reach through them. And so their privileged position turned to pride, which circumvented the very mission God had for them. They forgot who they were. They weren't the best. That's not why God chose them. God says, the reason I chose you because you're the least of all the nations. You're this, this, this puny little thing out there in the wilderness. And I took pity on you so that everybody could see how great I am as I worked through you. They forgot about that. And they forgot that God's plan from the very beginning was, hey, Abraham... I'm going to bless you so that through you and all of your descendants, all the families of the whole world would be blessed through you. They forgot that they were to be a light to the Gentiles. And they started to hate the Gentiles, the very people that they were called to reach. Could that happen to us? Absolutely. There's a great privilege that we have of knowing God as our Father. Great privileges that we experience every day in His provision. And that could lead us to a place of pride. And that pride could actually turn the heart that God has placed within us that is supposed to love God and love this world into a heart that is small and shriveling and building barriers between us and the people that we don't really feel comfortable with. And whether we said it or not, our attitudes towards those people might not be very different from that quote about that all they're good for is to fuel the flames of hell. Don't let our privileged position keep us from pursuing God's mission. All right, so we remember the cross and who we were. We were alienated, separated from God and each other. Now look at 13. We remember what Christ has done. But now, but now, that but now is like verse 4 when it tells us we were dead, but now, because of God's great love and mercy, we're made alive. It's the same kind of transition. But now, in Christ, Jesus... You who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. For he himself, that's Christ, is our peace. Who has made the two one, that is the Jews and the Gentiles, one. And he's destroyed, Jesus has destroyed the barrier. (coughs) The dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing in his flesh, in his body, through the crucifixion there. By abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. And in this one body, to reconcile both of them, Jews and Gentiles, to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him... We both have access to the Father by one Spirit. So, before the cross, who we are is we're separated. Now, through the cross, the movement is coming together, brought us near. 
That's the idea. It's just like what we would see if we know somebody who's struggling in their marriage and maybe they've separated and they moved out. One of them's moved out. Now they've reconciled and they're coming back together, not just physically, but in their relationship in all areas. That's the movement here. Brought us near. And listen to the phrases that speak of that. Verse 13, brought us near. Verse 14, made the two one. Verse 15, created himself one new man out of the two. Verse 16, reconciled both of them to God through the cross. Verse 18, we both, the two Jews and Gentiles, have access to the Father by the Spirit. So who's brought near? Well, Jews and Gentiles. To who? Well, as Gentiles, we're brought near to God, but we're brought near here specifically. He's going to spend a lot of time brought near to each other. Through the cross, we're brought near. And we know it's through the cross because he says right there, it's through the blood. Through the blood that we're brought near. And he goes on to talk about this bringing near, this making the two one, as he puts it now in verse 14. And we know it's Jesus who does this. And he's called our peace. He's the one who makes peace. He's the one who preaches peace. And through the cross, he makes peace and he is our peace. Our peace is not a place. It's a person. And that peace that Jesus promises that he gives his followers is a peace that passes human understanding. It doesn't mean that everything that is hard in your life is removed, so it's just calm. It means even in the midst of rough seas, In your heart of hearts, there's a calm. It is well with your soul. There's a sense of well-being in your life because of your relationship with God that now permeates all of life in all your relationships, even when they're not quite in harmony. There's peace. So he's bringing the two one. Jesus is doing that. And how he does it is through the cross. And we notice in verse 14 that the cross now becomes a hammer. It becomes a hammer that crushes and abolishes this dividing wall of hostility. Well, what is that? Some of the experts would say, well, it's that four and a half foot wall. Well, the truth is, at the time of writing here, that wall still stands. Christ has come and he's gone. He's been raised from the dead. That wall still stands. What he's pointing to is what points what that wall points to. It's kind of like the Berlin Wall. When that wall came down, it wasn't just the removal of a physical barrier that divided East Germany and West Germany. What came down was communism, okay? When it says that he abolished the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, what he does is he abolishes the law. I mean, that's kind of confusing. And if you've read the New Testament... You go, I think Jesus said something about the law and abolishing it. I thought he said he didn't do that. Yeah, that's what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 17. I've not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. So wait a minute. Paul's saying Jesus' death on the cross abolished the law. Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish the law. Sounds like a contradiction to me. Well, it's not. When Jesus talks about not abolishing the law, he says, look, the law is not irrelevant. The law stands as a revelation of God's character, as a decree on how you're to live your life before God. And I'm telling you, I didn't come to get rid of that. I came 
to fulfill the law, to do what none of you could do, because the law just tells you and I that we're lawbreakers. But Jesus perfectly kept the law, and in keeping the law, he fulfilled it all so that we're no longer under the law, because when he died as the perfect man who completely obeyed the law, he frees us from having to find God through the law. We now find it through him. That's what he's talking about back there. He says, I didn't come to abolish it, to nullify it, to just push it away and say, this is important. No, it's very important, but it's now fulfilled in me. And what he's talking about here then, Paul is, the abolishing the law, he talks about, notice right after he says the law, with its commandments and regulations. Now he's talking to a certain part of the law, what was called the ceremonial law. It had to do with all those laws that helped God's people know what it meant to be holy. Remember, he says, you're to be my holy people, set apart. And there are all these laws about the animals that they weren't supposed to touch and what they were to do with dead bodies and what was clean and what was unclean. And it said a lot about what they could or couldn't do relative to those other nations, to the Gentiles. You can't marry them. You can't worship their gods. You can't follow their ways. You can't sacrifice your kids to idols like they're doing. You can't even borrow money from them. He says that's what he's abolished. The very things that at the heart of the law would separate the two of you. He's abolished that. And he's, with that, he's abolished the hostility that's grown up around the Jew and the Gentile. And we know that has to be the right interpretation because when you get to chapter 6, he starts talking to kids and he says, hey, kids, you need to honor your mother and your father. And where does he build his argument? From the law, the fifth commandment, Exodus chapter 20. So what's going on here? He's bringing a sneer. How's he bringing a sneer of Jews and Gentiles? He's bringing a sneer through the cross. This cross is like a hammer now that's breaking down that which divided them, namely the law, but also their hostility. And the reason he would do this is because verse 15 tells us his purpose was to create something new. And this new thing is in himself. One new man out of the two. Remember when God creates in Genesis 1? It's out of nothing. Here, he creates out of these two that come up new in himself. And I was thinking, okay, what's that like for us? This is like this really lofty thing that I can't abstract concept. What's it like? Two things becoming one. And then all of a sudden I thought about it. Labradoodle. Labradoodle. You got a Labrador? I love labs. We've had labs now for about 20 years. And you got a poodle. And if you got those allergy problems, you know the labradoodle is just what you need. Because you're not going to deal with all the dander. But that's not what he's talking about. It's not a hybrid. It's not a Jew tile. <laughs> it's not a gent Jew. It's new. It's Christ's body. It's new man in himself. It's this new race. It's this new humanity. We're calling it a new community. That's who we are, something new. We're we're no longer defined by Jew, Gentile, male, female, none of that. We are one. In fact, Galatians will tell us in Galatians 3.28 this beautiful truth. There's neither Jew nor Greek. That's the word Gentile. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. For you are all what? One in Christ. Out of the two, he's created something new. It's the church. It's us has nothing to do with our past. It has everything to do with Christ and the cross, his past. 
something new. And because of that, cross, verse 15 says, we're both reconciled to God and we both have access to the Father, verse 18. That's what Christ has done. And that's at the heart. When this passage starts out, it tells us what we're not. When it ends, as we look at it here in verses 19, it tells us who we are now. But the way we got there is through the cross. It's that bridge that bridges the chasm that separates us from a holy God. It is that hammer that breaks down all the things that would divide us as humans. All the things. The cross crushes them. So there's no more walls. So there doesn't have to be any more hostility because Jesus died for that on the cross. So look at verse 19 and following as we remember now who we are, his body. Verse 19 says this, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, in Christ, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So note the changes. We were foreigners and aliens, but no longer. Now we're fellow citizens. We're members together in God's household, his family. No longer are we separated from Christ. Now we're joined together in this holy temple where Christ's spirit actually lives within us. And we note these metaphors, citizens of this same kingdom, God's kingdom, with the rights and the privileges and the responsibilities. Our citizenship, Paul says in Philippians 3.20, is in heaven. And it's from there that we await the Savior, Jesus Christ, to return. We have a common citizenship. We have a common paternity. We have the same father, and that's why we're brothers and sisters, because we're now a family. That's the metaphor he goes to next, from a kingdom to a family. And this family has some serious foundations. I mean, it's built on something solid. It's built on the word of God, the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. The way the Greek is constructed there, it's the apostles who spoke for God, who prophesied for God. It's these 12 that Christ commissioned to go out in the world and to share this message of peace. It's the same ones that were moved by the Spirit to give us most of the New Testament. He says, the family that I'm building is built on the foundation, the bedrock of God's word. And it has a cornerstone. And that cornerstone, the chief cornerstone, is Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know if you think, what you think about when you think of cornerstones, but a lot of us, when we think of cornerstones, we think about like the cornerstone that we have here at Door Creek. Um, it's this plaque where lives are changing one heart at a time. It's what we put to dedicate a building to God as we say, this is your space, God, to use for your purposes. And, and, and that's one idea of the cornerstone. You can see from the picture, it's not really at the corner of the building, is it? That's not what... Paul's talking about. He's not saying that Jesus is a decorative plaque in the church that we go to and say, that's nice. We've got this little thing here that just reminds us. Yeah, Jesus. Kind of a little nod there to Jesus. No way. 
This is serious architectural, structural. This is major to the building of a building. It sits on the corner and it becomes the chief referent and reference to anything and everything that's built from that point on, on the foundation. It all lines up to that cornerstone, Jesus Christ. So that's my family. That's who we are. We were foreigners and strangers and aliens, and now we're family, brothers and sisters in Christ. But he, he starts, you know how Paul's mind, it does, it does this. It's kind of under the inspiration of the Spirit, I guess we could say. Now he's, he's going to another thought. He's just switching metaphors, and he's talking about foundations, and he's talking about uh, cornerstone. All of a sudden he goes, and yeah, and here's what else it's like, the church. It's like a building. And now all of a sudden what you see is, you see this picture of this building rising up. What we saw in 13 through 18 is, is all the dust, all the things being demolished and destroyed. And now all of a sudden it's coming up. It's just like stream home makeover, right? What's the first scene after the family goes to Disney World? You know, Ty's got the wrecking crew out there and he's going crazy, tearing the place down. That's 13 through 18. That's what the cross does to that which divides us. And now, this is like day three and four, right? Where they, they always have this one scene. It lasts about 20 seconds, right? And what it does is it gives you this fast forward of going from foundation and framing it all the way up to the roof. And you're going, man, that was fast. Well, this is a little slower going. This building's been going on for 2,000 years, but it's rising. It isn't done yet. And what it's saying is, we're, we're the building blocks of this building. In fact, looking over at you, Brian, it reminds me of your charge to the congregation when I was installed here, when you took us to that passage in Peter and said, we're the living stones in this place. And that's what it is. It's these living stones coming together. And as more stones are added, we keep rising. And we're rising to become a temple, not a temple, the temple for the living God. This is unbelievable. That now God, who was so holy, who no one could come to because we were sinful, now he takes residence in us together. Not just in me, not just in you, but in us. And so it would be not fitting for us to say, welcome to God's house this morning. If you thought by that, I meant this physical room here is the house of God, because it's not. But it would be appropriate to say welcome to God's house because we are his house together we are this living temple that's the image here and when you think through these metaphors and the beauty of metaphors is the more you think about it the more truth there is to just go wow that's important that's cool when I think about the fact that we're fellow citizens in a kingdom it reminds me that God leads us he's our king we follow him When I think about what it means to be joined together as brothers and sisters in his family, it reminds me that this king loves us. He sent his own son to die for us. When I think what it's like to be these living stones that are being stacked together and joined together and cemented together by the Spirit of God, it reminds us that he lives in us. And so we turn the corner and bring it home and ask the question, does he really? Does he live in us? I mean, at the end of the day, here's the question. How is the world going to believe the gospel if you and I can't be reconciled together? 
I mean, what a joke to say to people. Hey, you need to believe in Jesus because if you believe in Jesus, you can get your life right with God. And when you get your life right with God, you're going to know this unbelievable peace and you're going to have purpose in your life and you're going to know where you're heading. And they go, really? Last thing I heard is, you're part of a church fight. Last thing I heard is, yeah, you live next door to me and I heard the fight going on in your house last night. Doesn't sound like you're being able to do it here. So why should I believe God can do it here? If Jesus isn't helping you here, why should I believe he's going to help me here? Any of us guilty of building walls? The cross keeps tearing them down. And it's easy for us to build them up. All you got to do is open up the yellow pages, friends. How many different denominations are there? How many times are churches going to split? How many times are Christian marriages going to end up in divorce? I was at the doctor yesterday. Well, it was Friday. I'm not a hypochondriac, so I'm just going to tell you that. But it's my sixth doctor's visit this year. I can't get rid of this cough. So they thought, well, maybe it's allergies. So I went to the allergist. You ever been to the allergist? The nurse, she, she, she got this pen out. She started marking up my arm, numbered it 1 to 24. And then I, I knew the drill because I've had it a couple times. And then she said, we're just going to do a little scratch. That was the wrong word. That was not a little scratch. She had these little screwdrivers with little corkscrews on them. And each of them were loaded with this little something or other that I might be allergic to. And she'd squeeze them and turn them into my arm. I thought, that's not a scratch. Scratches are quick and light. This is your, you got the Milwaukee drill going down my arm. Well, here's what I believe about my week. I believe that every conversation I have, everything that I'm going through has something to do with the message God wants to bring to his people. So I'm thinking, I'm two hours at the Dean's Clinic going, Lord, it's a long time. And my sermon's not done. I really could use some help here getting back to that. What in the world does this have to do? And all of a sudden I thought about it. My arm reminded me of we're the body of Christ too. That's another metaphor he uses in verse 16. And it just made me think of, you know what? We have allergies in the church to each other. And um, what popped up for me was grass and ragweed. And what pops up for some of us is political position, education, affluence, race, Age, gender, music preferences, and on and on the list goes. And what the Lord reminded me is this. Jesus doesn't have any allergies. He doesn't. And we're his people. We're his people. And how are they ever going to get it right with God if we can't live it right with each other? God help us. So that leads to the second. And this gets really down to the nitty and gritty of life. And it's this. What are you doing to find and make peace? I asked the 20-somethings. We get together the first and third Saturday nights, and one of the things we do after our meal is we talk about the message. And I asked them, show of hands, how many of you have a, a, a relationship that's, that's difficult, that's not reconciled? And 95% of them raise their hands. My guess is most of us right here in this room. And, and some of the relationships we have problems with could be actually with people in our church. Very a lot 
likely someone in our family, our extended family, our immediate family. How are we doing? How are we doing? And what are we doing? First, let's do that vertical because somebody's here, I'm sure, that you still haven't you still haven't found peace with God. And a lot of people say at the end of their life, you know, I, I made peace with God. We don't make peace with God. God has made peace with us through his son. And your human effort isn't going to cut it. That's what chapter 2 is all about. It's not by works. It's by the grace of God, a free gift through his son, and you need to believe that. It's not human effort. But how about in our relationships with each other? Well, let me say again, it's not by human effort. I mean, all you got to do is think about how many Middle East peace accords have there been in the last 25 years? How effective is man at making peace? Jackie showed me some just reams and reams of paper of peace accords. In the country of Sudan in the last 11 years, war-torn Sudan, where probably close to a million people have been murdered in genocide, in the last 11 years, there have been 18 different peace initiatives drawn up in that country alone. The Olympics, it's kind of a gesture towards peace. What does it say? The games bring people together in peace to respect universal moral principles. Bringing people together in peace. So what a mockery it was in 1972 when those Arab terrorists snuck into the camp and killed 11 Israeli Olympians. We're not very good at it. And here's what the text is telling us. You need to make peace here with someone that you're living with then you got to go to that place right there. you got to go to the cross. That's where you go. And when the two of you go to the cross, and the reality is the other person may not want to go to the cross. I don't care. You go to the cross. And if you want any hope for your marriage or the two of you to get it right, you go right here to this place, the cross, because it's right here that we'll see ourselves for who we are. We're sinners who deserve death, but we have been forgiven by God. And having received his forgiveness, we are in a position to forgive. And understanding that what Jesus did on the cross wasn't just for my sin, but it was for their sin, and it was for the very stuff that separates us right now, I know he's already paid for that. And he's positioned me to be able to forgive that person. And he's positioning me now through this new life that I have through the cross where I'm made alive and I have the Spirit's power in me to now live my life in a new way so I don't do the things that I did before that brought the division and the hostility. We go to the cross. You go walk through chapter 4 and you see what he says. Just look at it in chapter 4, verse 2. And you pick up these wonderful tidbits from God's Word to be completely humble and gentle as you go. Be patient, bearing with one another as you go down this road of reconciliation, bearing with one another in love, making every effort, it's going to take effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And then he talks in verse 15 of speaking the truth with love. In chapter 4, verse 32, he ends about being kind 
and compassionate, forgiving each other just as Christ, just as in Christ, God has forgiven you. And then there's that classic verse in Romans 12. If it is possible, verse 18, as far as it depends upon you, if it's possible, as far as it depends upon you, make every effort to live at peace with everyone. Make every effort to live at peace with everyone. There's got to be a whole bunch of us that are going to leave here today and go, Lord, what do you want me to do with what you heard? What do you want me to do? In Matthew 5, 24, he says, if you're on your way to worship and you know that somebody holds something against you, you stop, you leave your sacrifice there on the altar and you go make it right. You go make it right. And the way you're going to make it right is by traveling the way of the cross. And you know what? It may not be right because they may not want to get it right, but you do everything you can by the grace of God. And if you find yourself here this morning and you're so discouraged about this fractured relationship, there is hope for it. But the hope isn't in a counselor. The hope isn't in a book. The hope isn't in me. The hope is in Christ and what he's done on the cross. Remember the cross. Let's pray. And so, Lord, as we remember the cross, the architecture takes us to you, and we thank you how it bridged the gap. And the architecture takes us to each other, and we thank you, Lord, how you just tear down the walls. And we pray for our church, thanking you, Lord, that the love of Christ is growing in this place and from this place. And we pray that in the years to come, it would more clearly display the glories of the gospel so that that there would be a sea of the nations worshiping with us here and that people would come to this place and continually believe the power of the gospel because they see it lived out in us. Help those who leave this place knowing there's work to do. Give them strength as they suffer for reconciliation, even as you suffered for us, Lord Jesus. Empower us by your spirit to give effort towards peace and bless those who go in peace, we pray. Amen.